Welcome to episode 231 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. We have had all kinds of conversations over 229 episodes of this podcast. Sometimes we're talking about a book. Sometimes we're talking about a particular theological position. We've done all kinds of episodes and series on Reformed theology. And today we find ourselves in an episode about a particular person's theological perspective. Yes. Partly because... This is one of these people who we get asked about a lot. And so I think you and I said, I mean, we didn't have a meeting about this because we have no meetings, but we had a exchange of ideas where we said, listen, we need to do an episode about this. And so today's episode is going to be about William Lane Craig oh, man. and his theology, because many people have asked us just to weigh in and give a perspective. So to anticipate a bit before we do that wonderful thing of affirmations and denials, this is going to be a great episode, I think, because we're going to get to have sp- spend some time unpacking William Lake Craig's theology, but also this is kind of experiment in being charitable and hopefully to exhibit the proper way to dissect, to provide critical feedback on one's theology, and for us to provide an opportunity to evaluate that from a reformed perspective. Dare I say, this is going to be the definitive <laughs> episode on William Lane Craig from a theological perspective. Sadly, I don't think that'll be the case because he's not going anywhere. So I'm sure there'll be lots of room for people to do more critique. Probably us in like another hundred episodes are going to have to do another episode critiquing his theology. But I'm excited. Uh, you know, this is, you're right. This is a a subject that comes up a lot. Um, William Lane Craig is a very popular apologist, not popular in the sense that he is widely understood because he's a very sophisticated philosopher and theologian. Um, He is very well trained uh, in philosophy. Uh, I don't think he's quite as well trained in in systematic theology, but we'll get into some of that. But um, he's not going anywhere and his influence is wide. And so it's one of those things where it is important when when there is incorrect teaching being um, kind of promulgated far and wide to take time to address it and to address it accurately and to address it as charitably as we can. Um, but also, you know, it does, the, the Bible does say to call out and mark those who are teaching false things. Uh, and in some senses, it also tells us to avoid them. So we'll, we'll talk about all that once we get past our, uh, our opening salvo of affirmations and denials. Excellent. So we agree. Yes. The definitive episode <laughs> on William Light Craig. So before we get there, let's do a little affirmations and denials action. Let's get into it. What are you affirming? So I'm affirming, um, uh, it's kind of hard to explain how I got to this point. I'm affirming the human brain. Okay. And here's why is <laughs> I've been doing a lot of reading about the way the brain works as sort of like tangential to other stuff that I'm studying. So I'm reading this how to take good notes or how to take smart notes book. I'm learning about this Zetekel Gestan German (laughs) word method of note taking. Um, There's some of this that's integrated in uh, reset, which we're uh, almost all the way through soon. Um, And one of the things that I marvel at on a regular basis is the human brain's ability to store and to recall information Mm. But almost in ways that don't make any sense. So here, right. here's how this happened. I don't know why, 
but my Apple phone, my iPhone thinks that what I want to do when I turn on the car and connect to Bluetooth, it wants me to play. It thinks I want to play contemporary Christian songs from the late nineties. I'm not even sure. I'm not even (laughs) sure what app it's using to do it. I think it's (laughs) Apple music, but I don't know. So the other day I'm in my car and I'm driving home and all of a sudden a song by the band clear just pops on on my radio. I'm in the middle of a podcast and all of a sudden clear pops on. And so what was, what I'm marveling at is I have not listened to a song by clear probably, probably in over 20 years. I, I think I was probably still in high school. The last time I listened to a song by clear I remembered every single word of that song. I remember, I, I'm not a great singer. I remembered the harmonies to that song. <laughs> I, I spent hours and hours and hours trying to figure out the harmonies to this song when I was in high school. And I could sing them perfectly in the car. I mean, as far as I can sing perfectly, but I could sing them. I remembered them. I could visualize the guy's face because I remember a, a concert that he came and did at our church. Like, I remember that the, the girl, I remember her her face and her voice and the difference between her talking voice and her singing voice, like all of these details just came back in a second. And so then I went down this rabbit hole of contemporary Christian music from the nineties. And I was like, let's throw on some third day. And I was like, I remember every single word to third day. I was like, let's throw on some jars of clay. And if I, you know, if I can't swim after 40 days and my mind is crushed (laughs) by the crashing wave, like every word was just there. So I'm, I'm marveling at the way that God has designed our brains, that that information, all, all things withstanding, the fall, cognitive decline, all that stuff is real. I don't want to minimize that. But the reality is that for the most part, information that makes it into our long-term memory, it's there for good. Like it doesn't go away. Right. And, and the difficulty, and they've done studies on this actually, the difficulty and usually what happens with cognitive decline or dementia in, in older age is not in the fact that like the information's gone. It's in the mechanism that brings that that information forward. And ironically, part of the reason that song works so well is because it, it engages multiple parts of your brain. But I mean, like how, how marvelous of a God do we serve that, that, that is a thing that like an almost unlimited amount of information can get just lodged in your brain and with the right ways of doing it, the right methods, the right, uh, the right physical conditioning that can be brought forward almost on demand, um, with the right cues. So, uh, I just think it, you know, it's a marvelous thing. I just want to praise God for how, how wondrously made we are. It's, it's, this is like the opposite of adventures in Romans one. I don't know what that would be it'd be like <laughs> adventures in genesis one maybe or adventures in revelation 22 right i'm not sure but praise god for the human brain and how amazing it is right on that's a solid affirmation it amazes me how you and i tend to have similar experiences at the same time so just this past week or maybe it was last week i went the same thing with my wife because we have an echo device from amazon so you can play whatever music you want to at any given point in time. So we were going through some old music and I, w- I would pull up stuff and I'd be like, you know this, come on. Like, you know this. And I was finding that like it was, so we were listening to like Burlap to Cashmere. Do you mm. remember those guys? I yeah. do. So that whole album, like it instantly all came back to me 
And then um, she was talking about some of the bands like she kind of knew like on the periphery and one of those was MXPX. So I started playing MXPX and she was like, I was like, come on, you know this, you know this voice, you know this song. And she's like, I don't know this song. And I was like, <laughs> you definitely know this stuff. And then she finally, like after like 10 minutes, she's like, is this MXPX? And I was like, yes. And she's like, I figured I'd, you would not play that right after we spoke about that particular band. But it is an amazing thing. And yeah. from as somebody who just like took and is hopefully going to undertake more some testing in my own field, I started applying like this process of like the memory palace for yeah. memorization and learning. And this idea of like being able to like, basically the idea of the memory palace is that you can sock away an infinite amount of knowledge in your brain if you do it in the right way. So the, even this conception, this idea that you could possibly learn as much as you wanted to because guys created the mind to be in some ways like limitless within reason is just like mind blowing, no pun intended. So I'm totally with you. Like the brain as like an organ, as like the center in some ways of like our cognizant being is just like the more you get into it, the more you find like it just makes your brain literally do a somersault. So yeah. that's like an epic level affirmation. Yeah. Basically and you know, from here on out, it's downhill. Yeah, it definitely is. So the, this is the other thing I was reading is um, I'm reading this book called How to Take Smart Notes. And there's it's it's kind of a weird book, to be honest. There's a lot of like productivity philosophy in it. And there's lots of weird stuff. It, and actually, the weirdness of the book makes sense if you understand the, the method that he's using to write his books and papers and stuff. But um, he talks about how the human brain can only retain in short-term memory like yes. five five to seven yes. things. Yep. And and you can increase the amount of discrete information if you bundle things together. And that's the principle behind this memory palace is it, it's easy to remember the layout of your childhood home. And so right. if you can associate things you're trying to remember with the physical layout of your childhood home, then you can associate those things and kind of package them together. And he has a, he has a section here where he talks about becoming a, uh, an expert versus becoming a master. And this is, this is one of those things where I, I suddenly realized that I've been saying the same thing for several years and didn't realize it. He says, experts on the other hand have internalize the necessary knowledge so they don't have to actively remember rules or think consciously about their choices. They have acquired enough experience in various situations to be able to rely on their intuition to know what to do in which kind of situation. He also talks about like hanging discrete pieces of information on like a, like a, a mental scaffolding. Right. And I realized we talk about this thing we call the theological BS detector or the theological spider yep. sense. And we talk about how the, the catechisms, you know, for me, the Westminster particularly, the catechisms serve as this sort of like grammar that allows us to quickly compare what we're reading up against a known reliable source of theology. Well, the Westminster Shorter Catechism is a memory palace for theology that allows you to do exactly what he's talking about, allows you to become an expert so you don't have to stop and pull out your catechism and try to rifle through it and figure out and match it up. You develop that spider sense by kind of living in the text, living in the Bible, living in good, solid theology. Right. So yeah, the, the way that the human brain is designed and, and organized by God, it's a beautiful thing because if you if you tap into it, you understand what he what he's done and how he's created it and how he's designed it to work, it becomes all that much more powerful of an of a tool and an instrument for you to use in your pursuit of glorifying God. 
Yes. Well said. I love that. This is the, this is the last thing I'll share because we're already probably way off, but I have to share this because hopefully it'll be as humorous to me as it is somebody else. So in studying, I had to particularly memorize many, many things. But one of those things was particular facets of financial statements. This is, I'm not trying to be particularly esoteric, but I, there's only so much I can explain about the thing, this test, because in keeping with the constraints of what it means to take this whole test. So I had to learn like what they define as like particular relevant qualitative features of financial statements. Hang with me for just a second. And so to do that, I did the memory palace thing, which was to envision your home, like you're saying, and then you plant like people or things as you walk through that help you to jog your memory for the thing you're trying to memorize. One of those things was that financial statements are relevant. There's relevancy in materialism. So in my mind, I have my nephew, which is also your nephew. This is factually I, correct. I walk into our home. He's jumping on the couch. He's swinging around like a ribbon. And so to me, that's the way I remember that it's relevant. He's my relations. And so it's relevancy. And also he has this material, this ribbon that he's swinging around. It's material. But here's the thing for me that maybe betrays my theological perspective, of course, is the second thing I needed to remember was that there was faithful representation. That's the thing to remember, those two words. So in my mind, I walk into the kitchen and there is the Pope burning incense. And that's... <laughs> That's the opposite to me, a faithful representation of the scriptures. Wow. And so that's how I remember that thing. But the thing is, because it's like the whole idea is to create like a vivid image and your mind works so good with imagery and spatial representation yeah. that it's, I think it's impossible for me not to remember this whole thing now. Yeah. So and to the your weirder point, the, it's a beautiful thing. The weirder, the better. That's the, that's the quirkiest yes. part of this is when I, I, I don't remember any of it cause I haven't devoted any attention to other than remembering it for the test. But when I was in high school, we had to memorize all of the presidents up till that point. I think at that point it was probably, uh, it, yeah, it would have been uh, George Bush too, uh, whatever, Jade, whatever. Um, so all of the presidents up to that point, uh, and, and it was these weird, like, images that he created where it was like the first one was a huge washing machine, and so it was wash-a-ton. And then, yeah, like, the nice. second one, I, th I think, is, is it Adams is the second president? No? Who knows? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But, like, <laughs> let's just pretend that Adams was. All of the history, uh. all the American history buffs are, like, shaking their head right now. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Uh, if I got that right, everyone, it's just an accident. It was totally a guess. But if it was Adams, then like now the next picture is a is a washing machine with like Adams, like A T O M S in the washing machine. So now I can remember like Washington Adams, like whoever the next one is. So obviously it it didn't work forever. But I guarantee you, if I saw that handout, I would be able to go through every single one of them and remember exactly what each one of them was because that would jog my memory. So, so good. By the way, you're, you're absolutely correct. So it's Washington okay. Adams. Uh, and it probably, it's probably because I have this image in my head of a washing machine filled with like molecules that I'm able to remember that even accidentally remember right. that. So, right. That's so he, here's last thing we maybe should say, even though I just said that the last time I started <laughs> speaking, here's the thing we should probably put out there is that this, because God has created us with a mind that is in some ways able to remember, to process and to recall an almost infinite number of things. This is why you and I have said why scripture memorization is not only the thing that God has called us to, but the thing that is intimately possible. Yeah. And so using like this kind of technique, which uh, I try to use myself is absolutely applicable 
for memorizing all types of passages of scriptures, even long passages. Yeah. So it's almost as if God says, for the most part, on average, we are without excuse and that we ought to apply this type of technology to our own learning and that we shouldn't just use it for learning that's helpful to us, like in our own vocation or our own interests, but especially in processing and basically metabolizing the word of God. Yeah. So I see this as like, you basically got in like six or seven affirmations on this one because it was so <laughs> strong. Well, right now our listeners are like, what kind of memory device can we give them about how long they're supposed to take for <laughs> affirmations and denials? So let's let's move on to your, uh, your, are we on your affirmation? Are we really only that far yeah. into the show? It, it, this is going to be quick, but I have to say at this point, <laughs> my goodness, is it me or is our level of segue like a hundred? Like what is, we're just crushing the segues recently. We're not even trying to. I know, man. I don't know. What happened? So this is going to actually we're going to just into... crash and burn the segways for the next, the next. Now I've got this image of us riding segways, crashing into something. I've got to. Oh, tie that's actually that. pretty good. I've got to so, tie that to something I'm trying to remember now because that's a really vivid image. Create that meme. That's really yeah. pretty good. Uh, I'm just going to actually kind of piggyback off your affirmation. This affirmation does have to do in many ways with the brain. I'm affirming learning a word a day, which I've said before, but I'm doing it in a slightly different way. My affirmation is specifically wordsmith.org, which the New York Times says, quote, is the most welcome, most enduring piece of daily mass email in cyberspace, end quote. So this is a place for you to sign up for free to get a word a day delivered to your email inbox and to just explore the wonderful way in which God has given us language in so many different ways to say the same thing. So I would encourage everybody to go check it out and subscribe. Nice, nice. Yeah. You love your word a day calendars too. I remember I that was always like a big, a big favorite of yours when you would uh It's a big deal. Yeah. It's a big I, deal. I like but words. Words are I don't good. wanna I don't wanna like conflate this too much. We've spoken about how beautiful it is in specific that God Himself reveals himself in the word, not in the vision and what's seen, but in the word. So for me, there's just generally this sense of strong longing and admiration for words. And who doesn't want to learn like a new way to say something different? Like we say the same things all the time. You ever think about people have listened to us talk. I'm sure I say the same word and the same types of words all the time. I think we've covered that before. So I just love the ability and the opportunity to learn new things. So go to wordsmith.org. Check it out. Super awesome. Jesse, what's your favorite word? My f I have two favorite words. One is ratiocination and the nice. second is alacrity. So alacrity is... The feeling, it's a specific word that describes when you're in the midst of winter and you go to your back door, if it has like a, a storm door and there's glass there and you're feeling warmed by the sunshine, but when you touch the door, it's cold to the touch. That's that sensation. Nice. Raciocination is the process of exact thinking. And I just love that, that idea. Nice. How about you? Do you have a favorite word? I do. Uh, it's actually a Latin word, but it, it kind of transfers into English directly. <laughs> of course it's Latin. Uh, the word pulturous, which is a, uh, like a synonym for beautiful. I just think it's, it's a, Interesting. like, like a pulturitude is like a particularly beautiful turn of phrase or something that's pulturous is, uh, is beautiful. It's not as not as complex of a definition as your words, but I do like the Latin word uh, "wenawiculus," which means werewolf. <laughs> That's one of my favorite Latin words. 
That's great. I actually expected you were going to be like, actually, it's Yeshua. But I, I appreciate that we didn't get any Jesus juking yeah. in that conversation. Yeah. yeah. All right. So let's do quick. Let's quick hit on some denials. What do you got? All right. I'll try to keep mine quick. It's not going to be super quick. But uh, so as I went down my uh, late 90s, early 2000s, contemporary Christian music rabbit hole, I was astounded by how many people were singing about how they had no lack of assurance. Uh, so I'm 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 denying whatever force of teaching convince an entire generation that they had to be paralyzed with fear that they were going to fall away from the faith. So there's a song, the song that my car or my phone thinks I want to listen to is called why by uh, clear. And like one of the main lines is basically like uh, the idea is like, I'll, I'll scream for my own opinions, but I won't whisper for the King. And then like, you think about like, what if I stumble by DC talk? I mentioned flood earlier, which is all about like, if I can't, yeah. if I can't stay above the waves, what am I going to do? Um, you know, or I was listening to a third day and there's a song called, did you mean it? Where the whole song is basically like a, it's like an ode to somebody who walked away from the faith. And it's like, it's a song about like a person who had some sort of crisis moment and prayed out to God and committed their life to Jesus and then walked away. And I'm not necessarily, I don't necessarily want to blame these singer songwriter people. Most of them were in their like mid 20, early mid twenties when they were really, really um, active and famous in the Christian contemporary world. So if there's any blame to be laid, it's on whoever was teaching these people theology. Um, but I do think it really just kind of like, it just goes to show how rampant uh, our, our Scott Clark, our friend Reginald Scott Clark uh, is, is going to like stand up and cheer. He's not even going to know why right now it goes to show how rampant this sort of un <laughs> unbiblical, unhealthy pietism is in a certain generation of Christians and evangelicalism that it was, it was like you made a faith commitment and then it was like every, every worship song, every prayer, every song you would sing, every conversation you would have had to be some sort of desperation cry to God to keep you in the faith. And like, of course, we affirm that God, God, anyone who stays in the faith is kept in the faith by God and that we should be praying and asking for God to keep us in the faith. Like those are good biblical themes, but they should not be the most dominant thing in our in our own piety uh, by far. So I, I just I'm denying that theological movement and all of the stuff that came out of it. I think it's probably related to like how rampant like Billy Graham decisionalism kind of stuff right. was in that era. Um, you know, I came to faith at a, at a Christian conference where there were literally probably thousands of kids making the same verbal profession and commitment that I was. And, and maybe two, 3% of them, uh, actually stayed in the faith statistically, the Billy Graham foundation organization, whatever it's called, they did a study, uh, you know, they do kind of aggressive follow-up on people who filled out commitment cards. And it was something like, out of a thousand people who gave their life to uh, Christ gave in quotation marks, gave their life to Jesus at a Billy Graham crusade on average, like two of them were still active in the faith over the next 10 years. It was some, some abysmally low number. So I get why, why theological reflection coming out of that tradition is so paralyzed with fear that people are going to walk away from the faith. But I think that just goes to show the Bible acknowledges that that's a reality but overall, the amount of ink spilled on 
art like discussing and exploring and explaining that reality is is relatively small compared to the rest of the scripture. Um, the much more dominant testimony in the scripture is that if you are freed in Christ, then you're free indeed, and that no one can grasp you and snatch you from the Father's hand. So I, I, we just need to have an appropriate biblical balance in our reflection. But yeah, it was it was a weird thing where all of a sudden I realized like all these people are terrified that they're going to leave the faith. Like yeah, like DC Talk writes entire songs about. What happens if I fall? I, I guess like right now it's it's kind of an appropriate sign, but like what happens if I have some sort of high profile scandal? What if I stumble? What if I fall? What if I um, you know make fools of us all? And I'm like, dang, like dude, like just go read the Hebrews or something, or like go, like go memorize the first <laughs> the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. That's what I'm going to say to my best friend Michael Tate the next time I see him at the airport. <laughs> That's true. I meant to ask you earlier if any of the others '90s music, Christian music that you were listening to, are just your friends. Uh, no, I didn't run into any like Stephen Curtis Chapman, who I met backstage at a conference, or <laughs> yeah, or uh, Jackie Velasquez, who my one of my one of my friends proposed to um, at a at a music concert that he was working right. security for. So that's yeah. right. So good. Well, here's some amazing irony, or. Providence. I, my denial is in the same uh, kind of vein. It crosses over like the Venn diagram of this episode, if I could draw it, is already epic. Yes. So the, this denial is actually denial. Ah, I want to be fair. It's a denial of music kind of generally, which usually you're, you're prone to hear me talk about affirmations of music, but I'm going to talk about a denial in some ways that is a band that was in the nineties in the early 2000s, and that is Five Iron Frenzy, oh, who actually has a new album. Have you heard this? I have not. I do like me some Five Iron Frenzy, though. So they have a new, brand new album called Until This Shakes Apart, which I have actually been listening to. And I like to think that I have for myself like this really strong standard that if I'm going to say that I've affirmed some music on this podcast, it's the kind of thing you should be able to listen to with your family in front of your kids. And my issue with this album is you can't one, because there is a, just a tiny bit of language in it. And second, what I'm kind of denying against is there are some bands. This is so ironic. Like some bands from the nineties, the early two thousands who came into the Christian scene that gained notoriety and popularity. And then in my estimation have since then really moved away or moved far away yeah. from like kind of a faithful representation of what they started with for, and not for reasons maybe I don't quite understand, but if you were to ask me, is this a Christian album? I would say I don't know entirely because yeah. the music is very much like antagonistic. It's very much like there's a large political influence here. And that's not necessarily say it's a bad thing, but even Reese Roper admits, he actually said, and I'm going to quote him. He says, I try to speak the truth in love, but sometimes it just came out as angry End quote in referring to this album. So I'm kind of like deny against this, like, there's so many bands I've listened to recently. We've talked about some of these where I, I think they gained some notoriety and popularity. And in some way that caused them to move away from like the faithful representation of where they started either for a reason, because they really weren't as grounded in their faith as they thought they were, or because maybe that's, it's just easy once you become popular to like talk about other things and try to broaden your reach in your audience. So Here's the thing. I'm not condoning this album. The problem with it is it's like good music. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, it's very clever. So all I'm saying is listen at your own risk 
you'll find the language that I'm talking about here. It's not like prolific or ubiquitous, but it's enough where I actually, here's the reason I'm saying this is because I listened to a uh, Mike, the guitarist from MXPX, bringing it all the way back around. He has his own <laughs> podcast where all he does just like very informally, like we do, like talk to other musicians. He talked to Reese Roper. And unfortunately I heard Reese use like a large amount of like, what I would say is, is probably just like inappropriate language in the course of that interview. So the problem is like, how do you process that when like yeah. somebody who is defining and in some ways influencing these lyrics and is using this kind of language, how do you then listen to all this stuff? Go back and listen to our episodes where we talked about not throwing out the baby with the bathwater when it comes to music and especially praise and worship music. But here I'm just saying, listen, loved ones, like we need to be in or we need to be out. And it's better to be in and to be consistent with your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and yeah. everything that you do by way of worship and expression. All that we do, whether we eat or we drink, as Paul tells us, is worship. And so I'm just a little bit disappointed here that this fell short with me. But my heart in terms of like the music is in the music and it's good music, but I can't condone it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe just to, to bring this on an up note before we, we bash on William Lane Craig for the next 40 minutes. Um, if you, you know, the, the biggest trend in like formerly popular evangelicals is, de, you know, deconstructing your faith and abandoning it. Yes. If you want to see a story that is a hundred percent the opposite, check out the Alyssa Childers podcast. Have you ever heard of this? No. So <laughs> Alyssa Childers was one of the members of Zoe Girl, and she now has like a super high-end intellectual apologetics podcast. So she was in she was in all these contemporary Christian circles that um I think it's probably charitable to say really looked like a bastion of holiness on the outside, but on the inside, even at the height height of their power. Uh, we're just filled with rampant sin and, and people sleeping with each mm -hmm. other and, and partying like rock stars. Uh, even though they were Christ supposed to be Christian rock stars, a lot of them were just, they were just rock stars singing about Jesus, um, which is demonstrated by the fact of how many of them have just abandoned the faith entirely. That's like a totally different tirade, but she was in this circle. And then when she got out of, out of that scene, she joined a church that was just engrossed in mysticism and new ageism and all of the like, like, uh, crazy contemplative prayer nonsense stuff that goes on in some of these really out there churches. And, uh, she was like, I, this is definitely not right. And so she, she has like an apologetics podcast. So rather than deconstruct wow. her faith, she's gone the other direction and like respect constructed her faith. Um, but it's, and it's a good show. Like it's well-respected. <laughs> it's well put together. She's very articulate. I didn't, it was funny. I listened to like four or five episodes before she mentioned something about, yeah, well, with my time with Zoe girl. And I was like, wait a second. It was like a scene from a movie. It was like, <laughs> it was like a remix. It was like the, for the record scratch or whatever. I was like, what just happened? So uh, that's so good. Uh, well, here's the last thing I'll say about this denial is I I'm actually going to lay down a challenge. So Here's something I've been trying to process is it's not just that the album from five iron is like a little bit edgy, which has always been their thing. And that's fine. And is definitely like overtly political and is trying to challenge like conservatism, especially with political views, but listen to this song. So go listen to renegade on this album and tell me that in the pre-chorus, they're not using the Lord's name in vain. So this is kind of like five iron style is like, to push out a little bit. I think the way that the word, the name Jesus Christ is used is not prayerfully, but is actually like an, an expletive, so to speak. Yeah. 
And so it's stuff like this, we're talking about reform theology and you just actually posted this week on our Twitter feed, which is reform brohood, that uh, this idea of what does it mean to obey the third commandment? I think there's actually disobedience in that lyric. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing, like it's this thoughtful processing of lyrics and music that gets me. And it's like, I want to love this album because it's clever musically, but that's not enough to condone it. So listen to it. Then email us at info at reformbrotherhood.com. Let me know what you think. Yeah, I would actually say that's like worse than just dropping an F-bomb, to be honest with you. If, well, that, if, that's if what I'm saying. I mean, that's obviously that's, that's not good. I wouldn't condone just randomly dropping an F-bomb or even not randomly. I mean, intentionally dropping it's not any better. Uh, but yeah, yeah, that's that's worse. That's, that's, that's what I'm, I'm not trying. To, so I, I should say I'm not man, trying to cause people he, to stumble. He struggles with backward motion. Yeah, that's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh. We all struggle with forward motion. <laughs> I, so I don't know at this point, we can continue into the topic at hand, right? We have enough time. I feel like we should just, we should just quote Christian lyrics ironically back to each other for the next 45 minutes. Now let's, let's get into it. I, I, this can be a relatively, uh, th- this could be like a, a seven hour show, or this could be a 15 minute show. We For actually sure. did a question cast early on that someone wrote in and or called in and asked this very question, uh, which we now have got again, which is why we're going to do a, a, what amounts to another question cast on this topic. But it's important because, you know, there there's always new people coming into Christian circles, right? P- people move in and out of different Christian circles all the time. And so you may think that, that, yeah, we've already covered William Lane Craig, but there, there probably is someone who's going to hear this episode. Who's not ever going to hear that first episode. I don't even remember what episode it was. It was, it was probably in the first 50 episodes. Who's never going to hear that, who is coming from a Christian, uh, circle where William Lane Craig is very popular. And he, you know, he was the reason that the people he knows comes to faith and all these different things. Now that person needs to hear this. So, so we don't have to spend an hour explaining this. We will spend two hours explaining this. We can do this in, in pretty short fashion. And sadly, the reason we can do it in pretty short fashion is because the problems with William Lane Craig's theology are so blatant and so in your face that we want to be kind and charitable. And we want to, you know, we want to take the time that it, it takes to understand, but right. also it's, it, you don't have to dig very far before you run into really, really problematic statements. Um, I want to head a few things off before we dig in. We had an episode about what does it mean to be her- to do heresy? What does it mean to be a heretic? And and the place we came down on basically is the threshold for calling a particular teaching or body of teaching heresy is more or less that it contradicts the established teaching of what the scripture means and says in areas right. that have to do with salvation. So denying the doctrine of the Trinity, getting the incarnation wrong in, in certain ways, um, denying the personhood of the Holy Spirit, those things would all be heresies. Um, we would, you know, we would extend those things uh, kind of through the Pelagian controversy to problems with justification, understanding our, our own effort as somehow contributing to or causing our salvation, our justification or our sanctification, that, that that's heresy. Um, certain understandings of what the Bible is and isn't and how it functions would fall under heresy. So the, the bar for calling a body of teaching heresy 
in the grand scheme of things is not all that high, right? One of these things just doesn't belong. One of these things is not like the other. There's there's orthodoxy and well there's done. heresy. I've got like song lyrics coming out all over the place. Today, yeah, that was great. Right. The bar to call someone a heretic is dramatically higher. And right. almost nobody who's listening to this show, and certainly not Jesse or I, are actually qualified to make that determination. Because mm-hmm. the, the act of proclaiming someone a heretic is a judicial action, which is taken on by the officers of the church as agents of the church. So Joe Schmo on the internet who calls someone a heretic is using the term wrong. Right. Unless they're talking about like Arius, who's actually a heretic. But most of the people who are targeted by this word don't actually classify. And most of the people who are kind of out there determining who is and who isn't a heretic, uh, they don't actually have the authority to do so. So I may slip and call William William Lane Craig a heretic in the course of this conversation. I'm going to try hard not to. But if I do, then take that in light of what I just said. I'm using the term wrong. I don't know what whether William Lane Craig is saved or not. I think that what he teaches gives us some reason to be very concerned about his salvation, but I, I don't know. I would put William Lane Craig probably in the same kind of category as I would put someone like Wayne Grudem or Bruce Ware. People that, as far as I can tell, love Jesus, but got something so terribly wrong that we should be worried about them. Right. We, we did speak about that, and I think that's helpful. It's like, let's orient people toward heresy as an error that's of so, so great and grave magnitude and nature that it separates us from Jesus. So I think it's helpful. Let's just start at the top then, and let's start with like the major hitting stuff. I mean, I think you're, you particularly spent some time, I think, critically evaluating William Lake Craig. I don't know if you want to start with his background or just those things that we say are representations of what he believes and why we should understand or how we should process that in terms of like the reformed kind of theological tradition. Yeah. So William Lane Craig is, um, he's a philosophical theologian. Actually, I don't even think he would consider himself a philosophical theologian. I think he would consider himself kind of a pure, a pure philosopher who does theology or talks about the intersection of philosophy and theology. Um, the lines between what those things are can be blurred at times. And he has sort of, he sort of made his mark on the world as an apologist because he's able to sort of engage these different philosophical tools in order to um, overcome some of the more difficult, tricky arguments that some of the more philosophically driven atheists make. People like uh, Christopher Hitchens, um, Richard Dawkins, who's not super philosophical, but he does sort of absorb and adapt other people's philosophical arguments. So he, he made a name for himself sort of doing a lot of this work publicly. Academically, um, he holds a doctorate um, in philosophy. He's done studies in biblical studies and Christian, you know, Christian theology. Um, he did his doctorate under Wolfhard Pannenberg, who's a, a German uh, theologian. Um, so, you know, there, there's a, a pretty good pedigree. Um, but one of the difficulties with him is that because he is engaged primarily in his work as a philosopher and and in that realm he is rightly understood even by a lot of non-christians as a, an absolute expert in philosophy he's he's done work on abstract objects on time i mean he he's he's really a, a world class philosopher um but what happens is in his application of that philosophy 
to scripture, in my opinion, he gets the relationship upside down. So rather than using the scripture to constrain his understanding of philosophy, he uses what he believes to be sort of his philosophical gleanings from the study of nature or the study of the way things are. He uses that to constrain then what the Bible could possibly mean. And and that is a a very difficult um, distinction to make because, yes, we should understand that there are certain philosophical realities that have to constrain what the Bible means, because the Bible, the law of non-contradiction is a philosophical construct. It's a law of right. logic that we've yep. we've determined but through our assessment of nature that something can't be A and not A at the same time and in the, not the same relationship. Well, when we read the scripture, we can't come to a conclusion that makes something A and not A in the same time and in the same relationship because of the law of non-contradiction. But he takes it a step further and starts to constrain things that are not quite as clear um, particularly we're going to talk about the doctrine of the incarnation and the doctrine of the Trinity, but he constrains those things by what he supposes to be inviolable philosophical laws that he has come to through his study of, of philosophy and, and, and theology, right? So he's a difficult theologian or philosopher to engage because he's using these lofty philosophical categories that myself included, most of us don't have the training in. Right. And so it can be hard, you know, when you're online interacting with somebody who's who's proposing or, or articulating what, what William Lane Craig says, often in response to a question or a challenge that someone has, right? Someone says, I'm having a difficult time understanding the Trinity. I don't understand how something can be, uh, you know, three persons in one being and how that's not a contradiction. Someone in, you know, if you're in a non-reformed forum or even a reformed group will chime in and say, well, actually, William Lane Craig solved that problem by articulating it this way. And so you run into this and you're having trouble because on the one hand, you don't, you don't want to reinforce this idea that the Trinity is incomprehensible, although it is, but you don't want to reinforce this idea that like the average Christian can't possibly understand anything about the Trinity. But on the other hand, you also have to deal with some of these philosophical constructs while at the same time, trying to head off the fact that this person who's supporting William William Lane Craig's uh, position is almost always going to end up in the case of saying, well, you just don't understand. You don't, you haven't studied the requisite philosophy in order to, to get this. So that's why he's difficult to deal with is because on one level, yeah, if you haven't studied the philosophy, then you have to tread carefully. You have to, you know, you have to understand that you have limitations in your knowledge base. But on the other hand, those limitations aren't always the barrier that that they seem like they are. So I think that's important to recognize as the first thing. When we're talking about William Lake Craig, first is that, as I perceive him, he is a philosopher first. Maybe he would disagree, but like his his knowledge in that area is certainly profound, and he's done enough research. And so, but that's going to be the thing that, in some ways, is like the sieve through which everything else passes. Right. So all the theological perspective first enters into this rubric of philosophy. And so that's important to remember. And so where do we go from there then? So if we're saying that we want to try to understand, because he is a Christian, presumably, in terms of like what he's trying to process, but he's doing that through, again, this sieve or this veil of philosophy, then how do we understand what are his like major tenets, what he's promulgating, which again, he's very articulate, right? Nobody would deny the things that he's writing, things that he's saying can be convincing and impactful. So how do we process that stuff? Yeah. I mean, the, the hard part is with William Lane Craig, you know, it's it's easy to sort of start with the big points, right? His teaching on the Trinity is whack. 
his teaching on the incarnation is whack. <laughs> like, like that's easy. That's the easy place to start. But what you find as you start to like dig down and try to understand what's wrong with it, I think you know, going back to this theological BS detector, um, or maybe a B- BC detector, this theological spider sense. I think most people who spent any time with Reformed theology. Um, who, who've even read through the, the catechisms or the confession, I think most people would read William Lane Craig's theology and his articulation of the doctrine of the Trinity and go, wait a second, some, something's not right here. Something is way off. Well, what is it that, that yeah, so, triggers that? So let me read a couple quotes. This is from um, Philosophical Foundations of the Christ, uh, for a Christian Worldview. This is the second edition. I don't think there's any differences between this and the first edition. Um but this is the first thing to, to sort of like clue you in on his emphasis. The section on Christian doctrines uh, in this, which understanding it's a philosophy textbook, like he's not writing a, a systematic theology, but it's chapter 31 of the book is when he starts to get into the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of the incarnation. And so he, he writes about the Trinity. He gives a fairly accurate, um, a relatively accurate sort of historical summary of the controversies leading up to the Trinity. He summarizes some of the major views. And then he gets to his own proposal of, uh, of the Trinity. This, when I talk about like someone will chime in and be like, yeah, well he saw, he, he, he solved it. He appeals to two different, uh, philosophical concepts that are important. One is identity. So when we say that something is identical with another thing, when we use that in common parlance, we're saying that they look exactly the same, right? When we talk about identical twins, we, we, we're basically saying that in every discernible sense, they're the same, they're the same, they're identical. In philosophical terms, if something is identical, it's not only a copy of the same thing, it's the exact same thing. And right. so he'll, he'll draw the difference to say, when we say that God is God, right? Use that classic three-sided diagram where it's the father is God, the son is God, the spirit is God, the father is not the son, the father is that, that diagram. He'll say that the statement, the son is not the father, and the statement, the son is God are two different kinds of statements, right? He'll say that the saying that the son is God is not an identity statement. And what right. he means by that is that Orthodox Christianity, right? Orthodox historic Christianity, when they say the son is God, what they mean is that those two words mean the same thing. Now, there might be nuances. There might be ways that we have to articulate what we mean when we say that the son is not the father and that that clarifies the way that the son is God as compared to the way that the the father is God. Even that's not the right way to say it. But what he's saying is that there's an entity, there's a thing out there called God. And there's a thing out there called the son. And those two things are not the same thing. That's what he means when he says that the the son is God is not an identity statement. And so, so his primary criticism of classic uh, historical Trinitarianism is that it collapses into a form of modalism where the father actually is the son and the son actually is the spirit. Because if, if the father is, uh, if the father is God is an identity statement and the son is God is an identity statement, then you can just drop out that middle term and you have a, you have a new identity statement. So if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C, right? If the father is God and God is the son, then the father is the son. That, I mean, that's a improper way to say it, but that's philosophically, logically, that's what he's saying. The, the orthodox position collapses into property, right? So his proposal then is to, to postulate that, Rather than saying that 
there's this nature out there, there's this divine nature, and that each person is, is a complete full instantiation of that single same nature, which is the historic orthodox theology proper, right? He wants to say that instead, God is this collective of all things. He's this collective of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And if you don't believe what I have to say about that, um, he says this inference, um, this inference, he's talking about a, a proposal by uh, a guy named Leflau. This inference would follow only if there was only one way to be divine, namely by instantiating the divine nature. But the position asserts there is one, more than one way to be divine. The person of the Trinity are not divine in virtue of instantiating the divine nature for presumably being triune or ascribing a property to a person. So if the persons of the Trinity are not divine in virtue of being instances of the divine nature in virtue of what, uh, of what are they divine? So what he's saying here is that the classical understanding is that when we say that the son is divine. What we mean is that the son is a concrete discernible instance of the divine nature. Now we have to qualify that by saying that the divine nature is simple and can't be divided. And so the son is not just a representation or whatever. He's the full, the whole divine nature. All that is God is all that is in God is God, right? So he goes on to say, consider analogy. One by way of being feline is to instantiate the nature of cat. But another way to be, there are other ways to be feline as well. A cat's DNA or skeleton is feline, even if neither is a cat. Nor is it this sort of downgrade or attenuated felinity. A cat's skeleton is fully and unambiguously feline. Indeed, a cat just is a feline animal, as a cat's skeleton is a feline skeleton. So then he goes down here, um, skipping down a little bit. He says, this suggests that we could think of the persons of the Trinity as being divine because they are parts of the Trinity. That is parts of God. So being divine is truly predicable of any entity X if X either is a God, meaning an instance of the divine nature, or is a distinctive part of God. Now, obviously, the persons are not part of God in the sense in which a skeleton is a part of a cat. But given, given that the father, for example, is not the whole Godhead, it seems undeniable that there is some sort of part-whole relation between the persons of the Trinity and the entire Godhead. So, so to break that all down, right. what he's saying is that there's two ways to be something, right? I, right. I Tony, the single conscious person self, am a human because I am everything that it means to be a human. I am a full instance of the human nature. Now, we'll talk a little bit about natures and stuff in just a second here, but I'm a full instance of a human nature. That's one way to be human. Another way to be human is to be a part of a entity that is human. So my, my pinky finger is human. My right. big toe or the nose bone, the bone at the ridge of my nose or my ear or whatever it is, <laughs> that's human. That's a human ear. It's a human nose. But here's a few subtle things, right? He says, um, a cat is just a feline animal. A cat skeleton is a feline skeleton, right? So he's, he's swapping terms now, right? So what he's got is he would have to say, Jesus is a, is a God animal to use this language. He's a God animal because he right. somehow is the divine nature in a sense, but also he's a God skeleton. He's a God person. 
So he's he's now mute, mutating the terms here, where yes. we're no longer talking about the terms in the way the Orthodox Christ, you know, Trinitarian language is used, where the fullness of the Godhead dwells dwells bodily in right. uh, in Jesus. Right? That's out of Colossians. That's the Bible. Right? This isn't. That's not a theological construct. The fullness of deity dwells in Christ bodily. Right? Um, Christ is the exact imprint of the Father's nature. He's the right. fullness or the effulgence of the Father's glory, right? That's Hebrews. So so we're no longer talking about that language where, where everything that it means to be God is what Jesus is or is what the Spirit is or, or even the Father. As far as I can tell, William Lane Craig is the first person in the history of Christian orthodoxy ever, Christian, Christian theology ever, ever in history to deny the full divinity of the Father, ever. Right. So even before we get to the Trinitarian issues, his idea of what it means to be God is totally messed up. So to be God is to be the Trinity. And so, and no one person of the Godhead is the Godhead. Well, that's a problem because the Bible says something expressly different. It says something directly opposite of that, that Jesus is the fullness of Godhead dwelling bodily. So, so that's the first problem. And, and this is where I, this is what I'm talking about when I say you have to start to peel back these layers. William Lang Craig holds a position that he calls anti-realism. It's more classically called nominalism. So, so realism is the idea that there are more or less two kinds of things in existence. There's essences or natures, and then there's hypostases or persons. There's these essences that exist, and then there's the hypostases, which are the instances of those natures, right? This goes back to like platonic philosophy. Craig wants to deny this concept that there are natures out there, that there's any right. sort of continuity between different hypostases of the same nature. Jesse and I share no continuity of being between, between the two of us in, in any way, other than the fact that we have the same rough collections of attributes. So right. for, for William Lane Craig, a nature is a collection of attributes. So what it means to be God is to possess a certain set of attributes, and that's defined definitive of what it means to be God. And so Jesus doesn't possess all those attributes. So he's only a part of God. The father doesn't possess all those attributes. So he's only a part of God. A cat skeleton doesn't possess fur. So even though it's a feline skeleton, it's not the fullness of catness, right? Right. Not catness from the Hunger Games, catness. You like that? Um, <laughs> I don't even get that reference. You don't, oh, man, you need to see movies <laughs> once in a while. So, so that's, that's where we end up with this. And there's a number of problems that spin out of this, right? There's a number of issues that spin out of this that uh, we'll get into some of them with the incarnation. But fundamentally, the issue is that this denies the fundamental unity of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Because the way that mm. Christian theology has always held, always held, I mean, the very earliest real full Trinitarian statements that we possess, people like Tertullian, that they affirmed, even though they didn't understand and didn't have all the language to explain how, they affirmed that what unified the Father, the Son, and the Spirit was predominantly a shared nature. They had right. the same essence. They were the same thing, not the same kind of thing. They were the same thing somehow. And yet there was this diversity and plurality within that thing that explained how the Father could be all of what that thing is and the Son could also be all of what that thing is. But somehow the Father and the Son are not that are not each other. And that, that's a complicated subject, right? I, I mean, I understand why he's trying to do this because his his 
articulation is more intelligible. It's more easy to digest, but, but we're talking about an infinite being. So the fact that it's not easy to digest is kind of, kind of like expected for the course It's kind of par for the course that, you know, a finite <laughs> creature trying to understand an infinite thing, we might not fully get it. Um, right. so yeah, I, I mean, I could go deeper in depth in this, but I, I think, like I said, right on the surface of it, he calls Jesus only a part of the Godhead. Right. Paul Paul says that Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead. Right. Um, you know, he he says that the the Father. He doesn't say this expressly, but the Father is not God. Right. It, it's not an identity statement. So so in that we go back to that three sided figure. Right. There's the the Father is not the Son, and the Father is God. He would also have to have another line that goes to, you know, so that would be like the father is God. And then there'd be a little asterisk that says not an identity statement. But then he would have to have another little line that says the father is not God, asterisk, identity statement. So there's a real sense in which William Lane Craig denies the proposition that the father is God in in the sense of an identity statement. And that spirals out into all these other problems in his theology proper and in his uh, incarnational theology. That's why this is the definitive episode on William L.A. Craig. I mean, in part, this is why he's so interesting is because part of the question I have in my mind and certainly others have asked it of us is what is influencing what here, right? Isn't that in some ways the question right. is the philosophy and the understanding of philosophical understanding and logical processing, the thing that in some ways is over and above the scriptures. And we're not saying, of course, that God hasn't created us to be philosophically understanding beings, but yet at the end of the day, what shapes what? And what I hear you saying is that the philosophy is being held over and above the scriptures without respect to what the scriptures actually say. And then that feeds into, like you said, his understanding of the Trinity. Yeah. Yeah, so so we'll move on into his Christological theology. And this is this is another one of those areas where he he has let his desire to have and I'm I'm speculating about motives and he he probably wouldn't f- you know formulate this way, but from the outside looking in, it appears that he's let his over our overriding concern of a coherent, completely understandable system of thought override church history, biblical teaching, um, there's a certain level, there's a certain level of arrogance that comes with this of, you know, he's on record. I don't have the the quote right in front of me. He's on record in one instance of being asked, um, who's your favorite systematic theologian? And his response was like, I don't have a favorite systematic theologian because I don't know of any that are philosophically astute enough to do systematic theology, right? So his, his perspective is that a prerequisite for doing any systematic theology of any value is a, a solid philosophical base. And there's a kernel of truth in that, right? There's a reason that most seminaries have some sort of philosophical training as part of the curricula, right? So he goes into his Christology and what he's trying to, um, trying to clarify in his Christology is he is trying to say, all right, if we have two souls, right, the, the classic historic Christian position, everything that it means to be human, Jesus took on one of those, 
right? So a, a human mind, he has a divine mind and a human mind, a human soul. He has a human reasonable soul and he has the, the divine human soul or the divine reasonable soul. Uh, you know, right. all, anything that it means, both physical and immaterial to be human, Christ took that on in the incarnation. This goes all the way back to the Cappadocian fathers. It, it's a bedrock of Christian orthodoxy. Uh, again, this is one of those things that I don't know anybody who's not outwardly planning themselves to be separate from the church has ever really questioned until, you know, the last 20 or 30 years or so. Um, but he goes into this section and he says, one of the most creative Christological thinkers and seminal influences throughout the Christological controversies was Apollinarius, right? Apollinarius, the arch heretic. That's my words, not his, but Apollinarius, the arch heretic. He goes on to say, um, he describes Apollinarius's argument. He says, Apollinarius argued that it is impossible that Christ should have both a complete divine nature and a complete human nature, for that would amount to a mere indwelling of God in a human being, which falls short of true incarnation, right? So do you see what he's saying there? He's saying right. Apollinarius argued that if you take a full human and a full di full divinity, a full human nature and a full divine nature, and you somehow unite them, you've actually got two persons, which is exactly the same argument that William Lane Craig makes when he talks about the implications of what it would mean for Christ to have two souls or two minds. He, he's saying that's fundamentally an Nestorian position that results in two persons stuck together rather than a genuine incarnation. So he's starting from the same place of criticism that Apollinarius was criticizing the Orthodox position on, right? He goes on to say, uh, if, in addition to the divine intellect of the Logos, there was in Christ a human intellect, then the Logos did not achieve a full incarnation. The key to Apollinarius's ingenious solution to the problem of achieving a true incarnation lay in his anthropology. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he summarizes Apollinarius. We go back, go back in our backlog. We did an episode on Apollinarianism if you want to learn more. But more or less, yes, Apollinarius says the human person is composite of three different things. There's the body... There's a soul or spirit and there's the mind or the reasonable soul, right? The, the body, the spirit, and the mind, if you want to think about it in kind of the terms we use. And, and Apollinarius argues, rather than taking a human mind and adding a human mind, a human spirit, and a human uh, body to the, the divine nature, to the divine person of the sun, what happened is a human body was constructed— and then the a human spirit, which isn't the seat of personhood like we think of it, Apollinarius was using it in a little bit different sense, that was constructed. And then the Logos took the place of the human mind. So what we have in the incarnation, according to Apollinarius, is this composite of a human body, a human immaterial spirit, and then a human, a, a divine mind. So the, right. the Christ does not have a human mind, according to Apollinarius, or human reasonable soul. That's why we have language in the, the um, Athanasian, or not the Athanasian Creed, the Chalcedonian definition, or in the questions in the catechisms about what it meant to, for Christ to take on a human nature. He took on a true body and a reasonable soul, right? So those statements are contradicting what Apollinarius said. But going on, uh, what he says as he, he goes on here is he proposes what he calls Neo-Apollinarianism. And this is after a, a large segment segment where he basically goes through the Chalcedonian definition, picks it apart, and does the same thing to it that Apollinarius would have done if he had been after the um, the position. And so he goes through some other um, controversies here, and he says here uh, in 
section four of the chapter on page 603, we postulate with Chalcedon that in Christ there is one person who exemplifies two distinct and complete natures, one human in one sense. So he wants to align himself with with, uh, Chalcedonian uh, Christology. But then he goes on to say, more or less, that, that Apollinarius was basically right. And he, he appeals to a, a lesser known part of Apollinarius' theology, where he said that because the Logos was the prototypical human, right? The Logos was the pattern after which God, when he says he shaped man in his image, basically the Logos is the pattern of that. It's very common in uh, Alexandrian theology, right? That That's origin. Athanasius says this kind of stuff. That's That's not a problem. But right. what he then says is that, so it's fitting then for the son to sort of indwell a human person. And since the son already possessed all of the attributes, all of the, the, the definitional attributes of what it means to be both divine and also human, except a body and a spirit, a human spirit, when he unites himself to this human body and human spirit by taking the place of the human mind, he now constitutes a full human being. So, so that's what Apollinarius says. And William Lane Craig goes back and forth in this chapter. I don't have them right in front of me. He goes back and forth. And in one part, he says, well, Apollinarius anthropology was faulty, but then he more or less says, but the, the, but the whole thing still works. And so William Lane Craig actually says that the human mind of Jesus was the Lagos and that the Lagos had all of the prerequisite attributes. Remember, a nature is not a thing. It's just a collection of attributes. It's just a description. That's why it's called nominalism. It's We just name a given collection of attributes, and that's what we call a nature. He wants to call it anti-realism, but he even acknowledges in various places it's not all that different. He just doesn't like that. He doesn't like some of the other connotations of nominalism. Right. right? So this collection of attributes, this divine collection of attributes, had all of the prerequisite attributes to be human, And so now that he's added the sort of leftover attributes of a body to the divine nature, now we have a human, but we don't have a, we don't have a mind. We don't have a human mind that's limited and finite in nature, right? My mind, my human mind, even though we've said several times kind of paradoxically that the human mind can input and recall an infinite amount of information. That's not really true, right? My brain, my mind occupies a, a, a small little dome that we call a skull and it doesn't extend past that. He's arguing that Jesus did not have a mind like ours. He did not have a soul like ours. And so he he comes up with this theory dependent on the theology of someone that the church has universally recognized as a heretic. And then he basically repackages and says, see, I solved the problem. And here's, here's the most dangerous part. And I mean, this is going to be a little bit beyond the theological issues of William Lane Craig. I want to get into some of the um, moral and ethical issues with the way that he does his theology, because this is an element that most people don't really look at. So I wrote a series of articles a couple years ago. Um, I didn't finish it, but I wrote four or five articles that was kind of outlining some of these things. And shortly after I wrote the article, William Lane Craig posted um, an episode to his podcast that was basically a response to somebody online sort of summarizing my point and responding to my articles. And, and he basically like dismissed it and waved it off. And, and his answer was, I don't actually, he didn't say this. What he said was, this is just a proposal, right? I, I can't be considered a heretic because this is just a proposal. Right. Right. Well, the issue is, first of all, proposals have implications. 
So if you make a proposal and other people believe your proposal and then they believe a damnable heresy, like the idea that the Christ does not have a human mind or that the Trinity and God are different things and that the Father's not fully God, that's actually something you will be held accountable for. It may not cost you your salvation. I don't know. I don't think it will. But there's no sin that Christ can't forgive for those who are, are repentant and are in him. Right. But it's a serious, serious thing to make a proposal that contradicts the Orthodox Christian faith and then convince a generation of people who then convince another generation of people, right? The reason this topic is so apropos is because I still run into people who are enamored with William Lane Craig in reformed Facebook groups and on reformed Twitter. So it's not as though this is just some esoteric pocket of philosophical speculation out there. This is something that's influencing particularly young Christian men who are interested in apologetics. So now they go out into the Muslim world or they go and they do apologetics right. to atheists and they're propagating this theology of the Trinity that is not or accurate. They're, they're preaching a gospel with a Christ at the center who can't possibly redeem us. So there's real implications. And the, the issue with this language of proposal, one is that, that even if you are just making a proposal, you're still responsible for the implications and the consequences of that proposal. The other issue, and this is one that I, I think I'm on pretty good grounds to say, I'm wandering a little bit into some, some assessment uh, of his character that I, I want to tread lightly on because we want to be charitable. I don't actually think that William Lane Craig believes that this is just a proposal. Everywhere that he's talked about this, he uses definitive terms. He calls it my view. He says, this is my proposal. In one place, he's in a debate with a Muslim, and he says, this is a this makes perfect sense of the incarnation, right? If he really thinks this makes perfect sense, then what possible grounds are we having to believe that he doesn't believe it? Why would you believe something you don't think you think makes perfect sense? That does that doesn't make any sense at all. And so I haven't, this, this is new information. I've only shared this with a handful of people. Um, I had a conversation with William Lane Craig uh, back in 2013. This was when I was first starting to understand the problems with his theology. I was a regular listener to William Lane Craig, like a lot of people. I had heard his debates with Bart Ehrman, and I was really enamored with the way he defended the resurrection. It felt very understandable. And then I started to study his, his uh, Christological the theology here. And so he and I went back and forth about um, what it means to be a soul, right? He defines a, a, a person as a rational soul or a center of consciousness. And so the Trinity is tripersonal because it, the Trinity has three rational souls or three personal consciences, um, consciousnesses. And here's, here's what he says. We get into, um, into his conversation about uh, neopollinarianism. And what he says here... I need to find the exact quote because I want to make sure I'm quoting this really, really well. You can hear me typing um, furiously here. <laughs> um, so here's what he says. Is I, this is me speaking to him. I say, my understanding of your position is that God has all of the prerequisite attributes of being human minus a physical body, such that when the son was incarnate, he became human with the addition of a body. That right. seems problematic. Uh, in that it would create a contradiction between the human, the attributes of human nature and divine nature that are contradictory. God is non-finite by nature. Humans are finite by nature. God would then have to be both finite and non-finite at the same time, right? He responds as not God, rather Jesus. So he's isolating what he's saying about uh, about the attributes of 
humanity being, you know, about the Logos having the attributes. He's isolating that to the Son. Well, right there, we have a difference between the Father and the Son, and that the Son now has attributes in divinity that the Father does not, which he would be okay with, because it just means the Father's a different right. kind of part of God than Jesus is, than the Son is. But what he says is, quote, not God, rather Jesus. He is both infinite and finite at the same time, having two natures. Well, there's a little bit of uh, a little bit of a switcheroo there, because we weren't talking about post-incarnation. But that aside, he says, quote, I don't espouse monophysitism. I think the human nature is completed by the union of the Logos with the flesh so that Christ has a reasonable soul and a body, right? I think that the human nature is completed by the union of the Logos with the flesh, right? So he probably doesn't remember that he said this, right? He probably is not lying awake at night going, oh no, my whole facade of this being just a proposal is going to crumble because I told Tony Arsenal you know, eight years ago that I think this, but the fact of the matter is that in a casual conversation and in a casual conversation is where we are most likely to reveal what we actually think because we are not reviewing and proofreading and overthinking every word like we do when we're publishing a book, right? right? In this casual conversation, he didn't say, well, my proposal, which I may or may not hold, which is how he couches it later. He doesn't say that. What he says is, I think that the human nature is completed by the union of the Logos. This may seem pedantic, but right there in that conversation, he confirmed that this is not only a proposal that he makes academically, but this is the view that he holds. And I want to say this, I'm going to go a little bit James White on this, not in the crazy way, but in the kind of angry that I've been assaulted in the past (laughs) by this. When I published these articles, I was called all sorts of vile names. I was told that I was slandering, that I was hateful. I was told that I was trying to get famous off of William Lane Craig, that I was trying to be a heresy hunter, that I was a discernment blogger, all of these vile things that people said about me. And at the time, I totally held this back. I knew it was here. I said, you know what? I had that conversation. It was private. I'm not going to do it. There's no reason for me to. I'll just let it go. But the fact of the matter is that William Lane Craig is still teaching this stuff actively, right? He's still a Bible teacher. He's still a member of the EPS or the ETS and the EPS in good standing. He still writes papers. He still does debates. He still does all these things. And he holds, at least according to his own words here, he holds that the human nature is completed by the union of the Logos with the flesh so that the Christ has a reasonable soul and a body, but not a human reasonable soul, not in the sense that Orthodox Christianity understands it, meaning that the the reasonable soul is an actual thing. He had all of the attributes of a human reasonable soul in eternity past. He did not take on a new set of attributes. And here's the kicker. He does hold to monophysitism. Because if all that a nature is, is a collection of attributes, if that's all it is, then right. when you take one bundle of attributes and you merge it with another bundle of attributes, you now have one bundle of attributes that is is the set of both attributes. So he does hold to monophysitism. There's all sorts of other implications. If Jesus is part, if the Son is part of God and not a distinct person, then does the whole Godhead suffer in a way that's analogous to when I stub my toe, I can say that I as a whole suffer, right? Patropassionism, theopassionism, right? There's all sorts of implications that flow out from this that... If we want to do that seven hour episode, I guess we could, but I, I know that I haven't, I haven't stopped talking for like 55 minutes now. So <laughs> sorry, you, you did this, man. You brought this, you brought this topic up. That's fine. Listen, you have a different level of expertise with this, particularly because you've interacted with him. And I think that again, that's helpful for you and I, and we're talking about this, but also for our listeners to understand. So let's do it this way. 
as we draw this episode to a close, which at some point we theoretically need to do, yeah. how would you summarize? Again, the question is, how would we rate or understand or critically evaluate the general writ large theological perspective of William Lane Craig? Well, how do you answer that question? Given all, you've given a wonderful breadth and scope of detail, but how would you emphasize or kind of summarize that in like the kind of most specific and distilled sense? Yeah. And, and I want people to understand this. I, I say this with somewhat of a heavy heart because I, I don't, re- I don't revel in, uh, in any, in any declaration of heresy, but of course, everything that I said earlier about about what it means to be heresy, everything that he teaches in these subjects checks every box. So, so William Lane Craig regularly and over the course of many years, uh, I, I'm not actually sure when the first edition of uh, Philosophical Foundations came out, but I want to say it was probably 15 or 20 years ago. It was probably around yeah, the same quite time a while. As, as William Lane Craig's uh, 2003. Yeah, so right. so we're yep. now talking about 18 years. Uh, at, at a minimum, that he has been publicly teaching and defending and espousing absolute right. rank heresy. And th- this is what I don't understand. People are like, oh, no, no, he's not. He doesn't teach heresy. He literally calls his position Neo-Apollinarianism. Right. And the only reason you call something Neo-whatever is because you want to identify yourself with that. You don't, I don't call myself, an, I, don't, I'm, I don't call myself a Neo-Calvinist because I'm not a Neo-Calvinist, but I wouldn't call myself a Neo-Calvinist if what I actually wanted to do was distance myself from Calvinism, right? That of just course. doesn't make any sense. So right. on, on every single, almost every single element of his theology in the area of the Trinity, in the area of incarnation, uh, in the area of theology proper, he denies divine simplicity. He he denies divine unchangeableness. He had a debate in Ireland, and his opponent said something along the lines of, uh, "You know, well, divine un- divine unchangeability is one of the biggest barriers to Christian faith." And he says, uh, and I'm not quoting, I'm paraphrasing. He says, "Well, divine divine unchangeableness is not a uh, cardinal doctrine of the Christian faith. I myself right. do not hold to divine unchangeableness." Right. So every Every single box that you can check check about theology proper, with a few exceptions that don't distinguish him in any meaningful way from Muslims or Jews, he, he's very much a, a general theist, right? He argues for a general theism. He he holds kind of a greatest possible being theology, where you know it's this infinite, untouchable, distant. Um, being out there who's intelligent and powerful. He, he argues for that, but that's not markedly different than um, Islam or Judaism. The areas where Christians really become distinct and that our creedal confessional commitments that Christians are required to make because the church faithfully has summarized the scripture in the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedonian definition on every single one of those boxes, what he teaches is heresy. Mm. Now that said, I have hope and I, I pray for William Lane Craig regularly. I pray for Wayne Grudem. I pray for Bruce Ware. I pray for the people that I'm critical of regularly. I pray that these are happy inconsistencies, that he sure. he holds these positions despite having a true, genuine faith in the Christ of the Bible and the Jesus of the scriptures. And And I know that those things seem like they don't line up. I know that we've said in the past and I've said in the past that you have to have a certain knowledge content. Uh, and I, I think that's true. I really, really pray that there is some inconsistency in William Lane Craig's 
brain and in his mind that allows him to hold Orthodox Trinitarian theology and have faith in the Christ that the Bible presents, even though outwardly and maybe even in his own conscious thought, he is teaching something that is antithetical and heretical to that. Right. Um, I know those are strong words. I don't love to say it. I don't, I don't, I don't revel in the fact that I think that William Lane Craig holds to some of the worst possible heresies that he could hold. But that is what it is. That's what we see. And here's here's one more kind of hedging my bets. First of all, I have gone to William Lane Craig directly. Uh, he, he didn't have a lot of time to talk to me. This was seven years ago. Uh, I don't think he would give me the time of day now. I, I think probably my criticisms have been brought to his attention enough that he might recognize the name and would say he doesn't want anything to do with talking to me. Um, so that that aside, right, I have actually gone to him directly but we're criticizing, for the most part, public statements made by someone acting in, in an official capacity as a teacher of the faith. He's not an ordained minister, as far as I know. He's not acting in like a, an office-bearing position in the church. Uh, but he is very active in Sunday school. One of his most famous things he's put out there is a series of Sunday school addresses he did called Defenders, um, right. which some of them are very good. And this, yes. is where, this is where I'll stop. In the very first lesson he gives... In the Defender series, he talks about why it is so important to get get it right, why it's so important to get it right. And, and what he says, more or less, is that it's very possible to um, to think you love Jesus, to think that you are following Jesus and to not be because you get the theology wrong. He makes that right. point and he grounds the purpose of his class in that. Right. So that's that's something we have to understand. We have to uh, we have to get it right. And we have to hold those who don't accountable by way of public criticism, by way of speaking out about it, by addressing bad arguments, taking every thought captive and tearing down strongholds is just as much about confronting false views as it is about the inner life of the mind. That that is a reality that we have to recognize. So I, I hope this has been helpful. I hope that people have made it through almost an hour and a half of this. Uh, it's longer than we anticipated, <laughs> but I, I think that it's important because I, I think if you are on Christian Facebook or Christian Twitter or Christian Gab, I don't know, is Gab a thing still? Um, has the government shut Gab down yet? Like they were all predicting it was going to happen. Um, I'm getting kind of political, guys. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's not my wheelhouse. I shouldn't do that. Um if you're on any of those platforms for any amount of time and you're, and you're acting with anyone outside of our immediately reformed circles, you probably are going to run into a William Lane Craig supporter of some level. Or you right. yourself may not even realize that there's a dangerous teacher out there that you have been listening to. There, there are probably a lot of people that have Reasonable Faith podcasts queued up in their, in their episodes right after ours. So, so it's important to make this awareness piece out there and to make sure people know about it because this is dangerous theology. It really is dangerous theology theology. Right. That's the whole purpose for doing this kind of conversation, having it. And I appreciate your willingness to share all this stuff, including some, I would say, at least up until this point, like unknown interaction with yeah. William Craig. Like you heard it here. That's what makes this the definitive podcast on William Lane Craig. And I want to encourage people by saying, it's not that we all need to undergo this kind of intensive understanding of philosophy the best way for us to assess all things, to test all things, is to be thoroughly indoctrinated with what the scriptures teach, which if we believe that God has given us the Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth, especially 
the proclamation of his own word, then we ought to take seriously this commitment in priority of our time to spend some of that time processing, meditating, and reading God's word. That's what matters here the most. So it's not that we need this kind of advanced level of education. It's that we need the advanced level of the Holy Spirit in our life influencing us with his own words. Yeah. Yeah, let me me close the episode with a quote. Uh, Quote, Christ cannot be separated from truths about Christ. Someone may claim to say, yes, I believe in Jesus. Oh, yes, Jesus is Lord. He may have a wonderful spiritual experience of Jesus, but if they don't have the right doctrine, that experience is spurious. The scripture says you cannot separate Christ from the fundamental truth about Christ, end quote. And the citation on that, William Lane Craig, Introduction to Christian Doctrine. That was the first episode of his Defenders class. So this isn't just a corner of the reform community that wants to you know, pound our chests about something that we think is problematic. This is something that even William Lane Craig would right. take seriously. And he does when he spots bad errors and, and heretical teachings and other, uh, other areas of the church, he's vocal about it. So I don't think we're doing anything right. unfair. I don't think we're, we're being mean to William Lane Craig. He certainly uh, can, can deal with the criticism. You know, he's, he's in, you know, secular academia all the time. So he's, he's got thick enough skin that he can deal with two guys on the internet talking about his theology. <laughs> but if you are a, a follower of William Lane Craig, if you're someone who is supportive of his theology and you want to ask follow-up questions, you can call us. We'd love to get a voicemail. We haven't gotten voicemail yes. in a long time. The number to call us is 603. Uh, sorry. Check that. <laughs> 607-444-2767. Bros. 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 Six, 603 is the New Hampshire area code. Don't call that. I don't yes. know what happens if you call 603-444-2767. You should... Well, no, don't prank call people. Don't do that. <laughs> um, so so call us, leave a voicemail. If you if you would like to challenge our... our uh, or I suppose my Jesse didn't... Uh, Jesse just let me talk, which was very kind of him. If you'd like to challenge the representation of William Lane Craig's theology that I've presented here today, or if you want to ask follow-up questions, we would love to get some voicemails. We don't want of to course. turn this into the reformed anti-William Lane Craig cast. Um, so we're right. not going to do like multiple episodes on it, but if there's a good question that comes up that we'd like to follow up on, we would love to be able to play someone's voice. Um, we always say, listener asked us this, listener asked us that. And sometimes I think people yes. are like, yeah, right. Someone did. You just wanted to talk about that. It's all true. It is. It's all true. So it's all true. Jesse, since we're coming to the end here, I'm going to let you do the honors and bring us home. Yes, I appreciate that. So in the the sphere, in the attitude, in this idea of correcting error, I'm going to get ahead of my own error. Are you ready for this? Let's I'm bringing this all the way around. So I'm pretty sure way back when we started this, I don't know, it was four or five years ago, and we started with affirmations on this episode, I affirmed the word, I said alacrity, and what I meant was the word apricity. <laughs> 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 Which is super embarrassing, given that you asked me what my favorite words. So alacrity means, I'm pretty sure, like brisk and cheerful readiness, which is how I felt when I started this conversation. <laughs> Apricity is the word that I meant, which was this warming of the sun. So you can look that all up. So I'm just trying to get ahead of myself because somebody is undoubtedly going to look up that word. And I appreciate that. And I affirm that nice. in itself. So here's the thing. I appreciate this conversation with you, Tony. Thank you for sharing uh, your perspective, your understanding of William Lane Craig. And we do get a lot of questions about him. Like he is kind of like a lightning rod, like yeah. a foil. 
for lots of questions. So people are processing this. Go and do your own research. You are all reasonable people, but we want to weigh in on this important topic because it's important for us to have this opportunity to talk about, I mean, theology has embedded bias. And yet at the same time, it's important for us to evaluate and to process and to dialogue with one another about theology. So with all of that said, and a lot has been said, and it's all been really good, and apricity is the word that you're looking for. <laughs> with that said, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.